If you will, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We'll look at most of the chapter this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 9. In the 1800s, one man decided to go into the grocery store business. Another man in a different city decided to move his family out west. The grocery store business struggled, and the owner began to desire uh, that he studied law. But he didn't have enough money to buy the law books that he wanted to read. Well, one day that family heading west just happened to go through the city of the grocery store and happened upon the store. And the man pulled the wagon up to the porch and asked the grocery store owner if he would buy a barrel. There was really nothing of value in it, nothing special in it to the man, just odds and ends from the move. And they really didn't have room for it on the wagon. And the store owner didn't really want the barrel, but he wanted to be nice and helpful. And so with his last 50 cents that he had, he bought the barrel from the man. Sometime later, the grocery store owner emptied the barrel, and he was amazed to find at the bottom the very law books that he so desired to study. And that grocery store owner was Abraham Lincoln. And he would later write, I stood there holding the book and looking up towards the heaven, there came a deep impression on me that God had something for me to do. Many unrelated, random, isolated events and decisions we could dissect in that story that all led to those books being in that barrel and that barrel going right by President Lincoln's grocery store before he was President Lincoln. Different things converging for one amazing result. A little similar to an orchestra. You don't get the full picture unless you have each individual instrument playing its part, but the difference is that an orchestra has planned on converging for a common result. But when that happens in our lives, how do we explain it? It's easy. It's the providence of God. It's the providence of God is why Potiphar bought Joseph as a slave and not any other Egyptian. The providence of God was why Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in the bulrushes and not any other Egyptian woman. The providence of God was why Ruth just happened to go glean in Boaz's field instead of any other Israelite man. The providence of God was why Esther was selected queen of Persia instead of any other beautiful woman in the Persian Empire. God works in our lives even when we may not realize it. And in today's text, we will see God at work through some very strange, through some seemingly unimportant and, and what we might just call random events in order to bring the man that he wants as first king, the, to be the first king of Israel in front of the prophet Samuel so that Samuel can anoint him as king. In the previous chapter, chapter 8, which we saw last week, Israel asked for a king instead of being that light to other nations. They wanted to be like other nations. And God would grant their request, even though it meant they were rejecting Him. And so chapter 9 begins as we're introduced to the man who would become Israel's first king, a man named Saul. Look at chapter 9 and look at verse 1 and 2. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechoroth, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. 
And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he, from his shoulders and upward. He was higher than any of the people. This first couple of verses give us some description of Saul and his family. First, we know they were from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin was one of the smaller tribes. However, they were known for their mighty warriors. If you remember even from the book of Judges, um, many mighty left-handed warriors even came from this tribe, which was, uh, which was good in battle because most people are right-handed. And so it's good to be a left-handed warrior. And a lot of times that came from the tribe of Benjamin. We also find out that Saul was from a very powerful and wealthy family. His father, Kish, he's described as a mighty man of power. And as we read through the story and learn more about Saul, we know that this man, Kish, had servants and he has flocks. He is a very uh, outstanding man in Israel. And I use that in the means that he's wealthy, he's powerful. And we also learn about Saul himself. He's a very impressive young man. The word that's used to describe here that says goodly or goodlier, it's just your normal Hebrew word for good. But in this context, it has the idea of good looking. It has the idea of handsome. You may even have a translation that says that. Uh, and we know that especially because the end of verse 2 gives us some more of Saul's physical appearance, his description, that he was very tall. We would say quite literally he was head and shoulders above the rest. Physically. He was tall, he was handsome, he was young, he was impressive from a, from a wealthy family, from a warrior tribe. He's exactly what you want your king to look like. The perfect king. But it's interesting that the, the description of Saul and his family, isn't it a very physical description? It's a very earthly description. There's no, we're not told of any virtue, we're not told of any integrity, we're not told of any character, we're not told of any faithfulness. That doesn't mean that Saul's necessarily completely bankrupt of any good qualities. But it highlights what the people are looking for. They want a king like the other nations. How about this tall, handsome, impressive young Benjamite warrior? Saul would perfectly and definitely pass the eye test. So we're told about him. And then in verse 3 through 5, after that, that brief description, we, we jump right into some very seemingly random and unimportant events, but we'll see that these things begin to unfold in order to lead Saul to Samuel the prophet. So look at verse 3 through 5. And the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to Saul his son, Take now one of the servants with thee, and arise, go seek the donkeys. And he passed through Mount Ephraim, passed through the land of Shalishah, but they found them not. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and there they were not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. And when they were come to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant that was with him, Come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the donkeys, and take thought of us. These first events seem very so, uh, very inconsequential. A man loses his donkeys. And yet God will use that for his purposes. And Saul and his servant, they search unsuccessfully for these animals for three days. And we, we read that down in verse 20, which we'll come to here in a little bit. They search for these animals for three days. And while it may seem like nothing to us... This failure on Saul's part of finding these donkeys is actually 
the author's way of giving us a glimpse into what his leadership will be like. It's a foretaste into his, uh, his leadership abilities because think about it this way. The very first story we read of Israel's first king portrays him as a terrible shepherd. One author makes the point that in, the, in these ancient Near Eastern societies, a bad shepherd is a metaphorical image of an incompetent ruler. If you're a bad shepherd, you're going to be a bad leader. And the very first thing we learn about Saul, except that he's handsome and tall, is that he can't even keep donkeys where they're supposed to be. And he can't find them if they run off. And since we know that Saul's kingship ends disastrously, we know it's a fitting way to start the story. It doesn't mean we'll never see any good qualities from Saul. Especially early on in the story, I think, I think we will see some, some good qualities, and we'll try to point those out and learn from them. But as his story progresses, we'll see him go through a great deal of change. There's some things that Saul will do as we study through his life that are very good, and some that are just absolutely ghastly. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? Saul's one of the most intriguing and, and most tragic men in the Bible. Just in this story and in these verses, we could praise him for his obedience to his father, for his work ethic. And he searches for these donkeys for three days. It's a long time to look for these animals. He's not a quitter, but he's still a failure because he didn't find them. And he decided, we just need to go back because it's been three days and dad's going to start worrying about us more than he's worrying about the donkeys. But his servant has another idea. Because their three-day search has led them close to Ramah, Samuel's hometown. And so, why not ask Samuel for help? We're, we're right here. We're at his doorstep. So look at verse 6 through 10. And he said unto him, that's the servant, saying to Saul, Behold now, there is in this city a man of God, and he's an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither. Peradventure he can show us uh, our way that we should go. Then said Saul to his servant, but behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there's not a present to bring the man of God. What have we? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver. That will I give to the man of God to tell us our way. Verse 9 gives us a little editorial note about a word we're going to read here in a minute. Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. Verse 10 then says, Then said Saul to his servant, Well said, come and let us go. So they went unto the city where the man of God was. I love when this servant presents the idea to Samuel. Uh, to, when the servant presents the idea to Saul, he calls Samuel an honorable man. And that everything he says comes to pass. The word honorable is really neat here because... It means that he's well-respected and that he's valued and prized, but it's actually the same word that was used to describe Eli the high priest as heavy. It's the same word. It's the same word that was used to describe the glory of the ark. Heavy, glory, honorable. The same Hebrew word right there. And so Samuel is a heavy man, but in a different way than Eli was. Eli was physically heavy. Samuel's words carried weight. When he said something, you listened because you knew that what he said was coming to pass because he was definitely a prophet of God. And wasn't that the test that was given in the, in the law? 
How do you know if a man's of God? If, he say, if what he says comes to pass. And everything Samuel said, it didn't fall to the ground. It came to pass. Definitely a prophet of God. And so Samuel spoke the truth and he lived his life in such a way that when this servant of Saul, when they needed help, that servant knew exactly where he could turn. And I love that. And I pray that we would live our lives in that way. Would a family member or a church member or a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker or whoever it may be, if they were facing a trial, would they call you? Would they think, I need help, I need to talk to somebody about this. I can talk to him. I can talk to her. I hope that we live and speak in such a way that people know that we're different from this world. And that we can help them during tough times because we've, we've received God's comfort in our lives and we've shown God's love in our lives and they know I, I can reach out to that person. I hope that if that happens, there would be a member at North Bryant that would come to someone's mind. I can talk to that person. I can help them. Uh, they can help me. You never know how God can use you. You may be surprised sometimes in your life who God reaches through your influence, even when maybe you didn't think you were doing anything. But people listen and people watch, and I pray that we live our lives like Samuel, that people will turn to us during tough times. And during this trial, the servant thought of Samuel. But Saul's reluctant to go, right, because he didn't have any, any gift to offer Samuel. And some authors just absolutely blast Saul here and, and say he's absolutely spiritually ignorant. He thinks you have to buy God's help by giving a gift. And, and I'm not saying that people never thought that and that people never tried to bribe a prophet. Of course that happened. But that may be going a little too far here because it was a custom to take a gift to the prophet when you went to see him. So, you know, maybe we're a little bit too rough on Saul there. But he still does come across spiritually ignorant here. Not so much about bringing a gift, but rather that it's his servant's idea to seek Samuel's help instead of Saul's. Why isn't it Saul's idea to seek his help? So I think that tells us a little something about Saul, is that when he's facing this tough time in his life, when he's going through this trial, it doesn't even enter his mind to seek God's help. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't turn to God in prayer. We're not told about any prayer, any turning to God here. Not only that, but he appears to be completely unaware that a prophet even lived in Ramah. You say, yeah, but they might have lived, you know, 100 miles away from Ramah. No, they didn't. We're told in chapter 10 where Saul's hometown was. And Saul's hometown is a, is a city named Gibeah. And Gibeah was only five miles from Ramah. For Saul's whole life, he has lived five miles from the greatest prophet in Israel since Moses. And he seems to be completely unaware that Samuel is there. One, one author says, like many people today, he wasn't against religion, but he didn't make knowing the Lord a vital part of his life. Don't just be okay with God. Don't just be not against God. I don't have a problem with church. I don't have a problem with God. I don't have a problem with reading my Bible. Don't be indifferent. God needs to be number one in your life. He needs to be your top 
focus, your top priority, your service to Him. I think that's probably a fair description of God. He's not anti-God. He's just not sold out to God. God's just not number one in His life. And it needs to be the top priority in our lives. So as we're introduced to Saul here, he's depicted as a bad shepherd who doesn't think to ask for God's help during trouble and probably doesn't even know there's a great prophet five miles from his hometown. Sounds like the making of a great king. Yeah, but he's tall. So the servant has a little silver they can offer Samuel. So they, they march up the hill to the city. Verse 11 through 13, they're going to ask some young ladies for some help if Samuel was there. And, uh, you know, even though this is Ramah and they're in Samuel's hometown, he traveled around a lot, remember? So he may not even be there, but the servant says, let's, let's go see. So look at verse 11 through 13. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, He is. Behold, he's before you. Make haste now, for he came today to the city. For there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as ye become into the city, ye shall straightway find him before ye go up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he come, because he doth bless the sacrifice. And afterwards they eat that be bidden. Now therefore get you up, for about this time you shall find him. The, the ladies that are there drawing water give a pretty detailed description about what's going on in the city, about Samuel just arriving that day, and where to go to find him, and how the services that night are going to happen. And um, I, I laughed when one author said, maybe these Jewish maids were happy to chat with a tall, handsome stranger. Oh, yeah, he's here. Let me, let's tell, we'll tell you all about it. I don't know. I just I thought that was funny. So after an unsuccessful three-day search for, for the lost donkeys, as luck would have it, and I use that phrase sarcastically. Samuel just happens to be back at home that very night for a service, a feast that they had prepared and were planning. And as luck would have it, they've arrived at the city just in time to catch him on his way to the services. He was going to the high place, and the high place would have been a, a hill or a, 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 just a small mountain outside of a city. At that time in Israel, there was no central worship location. There was no temple yet. Shiloh has been destroyed. Uh, so the people would worship on a hill outside of the city. And uh, often if you read through the Old Testament, these high places are associated with false worship. Uh, a lot of uh, pagan activities went on at these places. But since Samuel is involved here, I can say without a doubt this was going to be a service that was for, for the true God of Israel. These sacrifices were going to be to God. And this was just where they were going to offer them to him. Um, and so in verse 14 through 17, uh, as Samuel's going to be making his way to the high place, Saul and his servant are making their way to the gate of the city. Uh, if they hurry, they can catch him before services start. You know, it's like catching the preacher on the way in. If you hurry, you can get him. You know, but if he gets up here, it's, services are going to start. And, no. So they, they're going to hurry up the hill. Look at verse 14 through 17. And they went up into the city. And when they were coming to the city, behold. I love that. It's almost like it's a surprise what's going to happen, right? Behold. Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cries come unto me. And when Samuel saw Saul... The Lord said unto him, Behold, the man whom I spake to thee of, this same shall reign over my people. 
I love that word behold there. Again, like it's an accident or like it should surprise us. As soon as they went up to the city gate, behold, Samuel just happened to be walking out, going towards the, the high place. And the, that word behold is used about six times there in this story. It draws our attention um, to the fact that all of these random events are lining up just at the right time so that these things can happen. And it, it may almost seem surprising, but it shouldn't be. And I think that's why the word behold is used so many times here. Uh, it's not a coincidence that Samuel and Saul met that day. And if you thought that maybe I was over-spiritualizing the events here and saying these, all these random events are going to you know, converge onto something great, I hope these verses convince you of the fact that God was indeed at work behind the scenes. God told Samuel the day before Saul arrived, tomorrow about this time. Notice what he says in verse 16. I will send thee a man. This wasn't just God knowing the future or God predicting the future. This is God at work in the lives of these men. He says, I will send him to you. See, I thought he was just out looking for donkeys. He was, but God was sending him to Samuel. That's how masterful God is. He's so masterful that he can accomplish his purposes regardless of the individual decisions of men. Saul and his servant made every decision on their own about which city to go to to find these donkeys. And it led them to Ramah. God knew that. And God would use their decisions. He would use their choices. He created men with free will. We have the God-given ability and right to make our own individual decisions. And yet God is so sovereign and masterful that He will accomplish His purposes regardless of our decisions. God takes individual colors and makes a rainbow. What seems like random, isolated, unrelated events to bring Saul and Samuel face to face, God's using it. It's not fatalism, it's not Calvinism, it's providence. And it's pretty amazing. And another amazing thing in this verse is God's purpose for Saul's kingship. Notice what he says in verse 16. He tells Samuel, will anoint him to be captain over my people. Why? that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. See, why is that so amazing, Brother Matt? Because the fact that they've asked for a king meant they were rejecting God. And yet God's whole purpose and desire for Saul's kingship is still for Israel's ultimate good. That Saul will lead them triumphantly over their enemies. Yes, he warned the people through Samuel in the last chapter that a king would bring his own kind of oppression. But at least they wouldn't be suffering at the hands of the Philistines anymore. And so here, just like so many other times during the period of Judges, when God's people would cry out, God heard them. And even though they didn't deserve it, God's going to help them. He's compassionate upon them even while they're rejecting Him. Aren't you glad that God's compassion isn't reserved for people who deserve it? If God only showered grace and mercy and love on people who deserve it, there wouldn't be any grace and mercy and love in this room today. 
Because none of us deserve God's help and His compassion and His love, yet He gives it to us anyway. Israel had just rejected Him as king. He said, okay, I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to warn you about what He's going to do. I still want Him to be a good king, though. I still want Him to save you from the Philistines. That's pretty awesome. Verse 18 through 20, when, Samuel, uh, when Saul approached, God let Samuel know there. We, we just read this. God let Samuel know that this is the man I told you about. But Saul has no clue who Samuel was. Okay? When we read 18 through 20 here in just a second, um, he's going to ask Samuel where the prophet's house is. Samuel says, I'm the, I'm the prophet. He, he, Saul had no clue, which just further supports that spiritual indifference in his life. But look at verse 18 through 20 now. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate, and he said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me unto the high place, for ye shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let thee go, and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. And as for thine donkeys that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? Saul didn't say a word to Samuel about any lost donkeys. Which makes verse 20 so great. What do you think went through Saul's mind when Samuel says, Don't worry about those donkeys, they're found. Did, I, did we say anything to him about How did you know about that? I told you he was a man of God. I told you everything he said comes to pass. How does he know they're found? We couldn't even find them. There were much more important things going on than finding some lost donkeys. Samuel tells Saul, the desire of every Israelite has fallen upon you. Say, so what does that mean? It means they desired a king and he'd be the king. They wanted an earthly king so bad and it was going to be Saul. In the next chapter, he's going to be anointed by Samuel as king. Saul's very puzzled, though, by these words. Very strange, and he seems humbled by them in verse 21, even though some of his words are not technically true. Look at verse 21. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? Why in the world are you talking to me like this? I'm nobody. Benjamin was a small tribe. That was true. But what's not true of his statement is that his father's house is definitely not the least of the Benjamite families. We've already read that in cha uh, verse 1 and 2. His dad, Kish, is a mighty man of power. Um, so perhaps Saul is just being genuinely humble. You know, I, I, why are you talking to me like this? We're nobody. Maybe it was some false humility. I don't know. He's definitely confused and, and, and doesn't know, you know what, what kind of greeting is this. One author suggests this, and I think it's very interesting, that Saul is thinking about the spiritual value of his clan and his tribe. Or even if Saul isn't thinking about it, it's what we should be thinking about. He says that perhaps in the presence of Samuel the seer, Saul was reckoning spiritually, his clan being the least spiritual clan of the most sin-stained tribe. If you know the stories through the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin stands out as being especially evil, even surrounded by evil. 
they, they kind of, they take the cake. And even Saul's hometown of Gibeah was a city in Judges 19 that's on par with Sodom and Gomorrah for their evil acts and their wickedness. You can go back and read the story in Judges 19 and 20 later today. Now, I, I encourage you to do so. Absolutely vile and wicked. Gibeah, a city from Benjamin. And yet that's where the first king comes from. So spiritually, maybe this is the least of tribes. Maybe this is the, the, the lowest of tribes. Spiritually speaking, Saul's right. I don't know if that's what he was thinking about, but it is definitely interesting for us to think about. And so this is not at all how he thought the meeting with the prophet would go. But in verse 22 through 25, we'll see Samuel speak very highly of Saul. He's not, he, he doesn't accept this humility. Samuel, Samuel showers him with praise, showers him with, with gifts. Uh, he treats him like a king, pun intended. Look at verse 22 through 25. And Samuel took Saul and his servant, brought them into the parlor or the chamber, and made them sit in the chiefest place among them that were bidden, which were about 30 persons. And Samuel said unto the cook, Bring the portion which I gave thee, of which I said unto thee, Set it by thee. And the cook took up the shoulder and that which was upon it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Behold, that which is left, set it before thee and eat. For unto this time hath it been kept for thee, since I said, I have invited the people. So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. That's such a small phrase, but I love it. Saul did eat with Samuel that day. Two men that before we started this chapter, Saul didn't even know Samuel lived five miles from him. And now they're eating together. Verse 25 says that when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house. So Samuel honored Saul and his servant with the best seats that night at those, at those services and that feast. He gave Saul a special portion of the feast, one that was specifically set aside just for him because Samuel knew he was coming because God told him he was coming. Even though Saul didn't know. And so even though Saul's not yet been technically officially anointed as king yet, Samuel is setting forth a great example of how the Israelites should respect the Lord's anointed. Even though all of this displeased Samuel, right? Remember last chapter? He, did, he was not happy about them asking for a king. But yet, he's still being obedient to what God tells him to do. He's still going to anoint Saul as king. Good example that we can see in the life of Samuel. And so after the worship and the feasting was finished, Saul went to Samuel's house where they went up to the roof and they visited. And that was very common during these times. The roof of a house back then, don't think of our, uh, our kind of roofs, uh, they would be flat. And so it would be a nice place to kind of go up and, and sit, visit. And sometimes they would even sleep up there during the warm summer months because you could catch a breeze up there that you wouldn't catch in the house. And so Saul and his servant, I'm sure, and Samuel, they go up to Samuel's house. They go up to the roof and... And they fellowship. And they visit. And this prophet of God is speaking to a man he's going to anoint pretty soon as king. So a man in Gibeah loses his donkeys. He sends his son to look for them. And after an unsuccessful three-day search, some advice from his servant and some guidance from Jewish maidens, his son is fellowshipping with Samuel, a prophet he didn't even know existed. And God knew all that. God knew all that. 
do you trust that God cares for you individually? That he has a plan for your life? Do you believe that even when you have questions, God already knows the answers? And that when we struggle with the present, he already knows the future? Trust God with each step of your life. He does have a plan for you, even if it's tough for you to see at the moment. And ultimately, his plan is for you to serve him. We may not know all the specifics, but we know that. We know God's plan for you is for you to serve him and obey him. And that begins with repenting of your sins and trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've never done that, it's the most important decision you'll ever make. Repent and trust Him. And know that if you'll serve Him one day at a time, you'll always be where He wants you to be, even if you can't see 30 days down the line. Or 365 days down the line. I'm sure that you can look back at times in your life when you were chasing lost donkeys. Or at least it felt like that. But God had a plan all along, didn't He? He was using individual, isolated, random circumstances that would converge on an amazing result. Even when we didn't see it. I, I could give you story after story in my life where I can look back now and see I know exactly what God was doing now, but at the time I had so many questions. And I'm sure many of you are like that. Maybe we questioned in the moment, but hindsight's 2020. And while some may call it luck, chance, or coincidence, we would call it providence. Never underestimate and never doubt the providence of God in your life. Would you stand? I'm going to read a scripture before we have our, our word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. You've heard it before. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You so much for Your word, for the lessons that we learned from it, for the truth that's found therein. And, and Father, we pray that as we live our lives, we will just follow You and trust You every step of the way knowing that you have a plan for our lives, knowing that it involves us serving you. Father, give us grace to serve you. Help us to be humble servants. Help us to love you and love one another. And thank you so much for your direction and guidance in our lives. May we never take it for granted. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.